All right, all right, all right. Anybody? Ah, Matthew, okay. Hey, um, never mind. I'm holding my tongue on Matthew. I used to like Matthew. Um, Deuteronomy, open your books up to Deuteronomy chapter six. So we're gonna take, a, take one more week here, take a break after this. We'll start an Advent series. We'll talk more about Advent, what it is in this next week or so. Um, but just know that uh, we're gonna take a break and the series will start next week, go through uh, December and then um, we'll get back into Deuteronomy in January. So Deuteronomy chapter six, we're only gonna look at verses one through nine this morning. It's a, um, it's, it's a popular passage if you are Jewish, if you are Hebrew, if, if you grew up in Israel or in a Jewish community, this would be one of those, those there's some verses embedded in these, these verses. This is one of those where you would have learned it real early on growing up. You would have memorized it. It was a, it's a, it's a daily prayer. In fact, today, even today, Orthodox Jews, so just for the moment, Orthodox Jews, when you see them on TV, usually like picture the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. They've got the, the maybe a black hat when they got the curls coming down, right? That would be an, an, an Orthodox Jew. Um, just like um, Christianity has different branches, we call them denominations. Ju- Judaism has different branches, so to speak. Um, Orthodox, conservative, they, they just got different breaks. The, cons- the Orthodox Jews tend to hold more tightly and more literally and woodenly to some of the scriptures. Well, they still twice a day will pronounce the prayer that you see coming up. So it's a, it's a very popular passage. Now for us, it's not part of our daily prayer, but I'm gonna show you why what we're looking at today still has implications for us now. And, and, and so Deuteronomy chapter six, it's gonna hit, it's gonna hit home um, quite literally. Right, so look with me at Deuteronomy chapter six. We're looking at verses one through nine. If you need a Bible, there's some on the chairs around you. Page 117, or if you have one of our, uh, the thicker Bibles, it'll be page 151. But one of those pages will get you to Deuteronomy chapter six, verses one through nine. Now, before we look at this, last week we did chapter five, all just in one message, and it included the 10 commandments, right? And we said that the word commandment's not actually there and it's actually the 10 words. We talked through that. Um, But here's the thing. So what I explained last week was those 10 words actually serve as an outline or a a skeleton to the rest of the covenant. It's like the skeleton. And then what what Moses starts to do now in chapter six on is he's going to start to fill in the substance. Right? And so um, these, these 10 words that we looked at last week are what we tend to know. We, we don't know as much about chapter six and four, but keep in mind now what Moses is doing is he's starting to put some meat on those bones that he just gave us last week. And he's, he's still standing before this new generation and he's giving them God's words for them. Here's what you need to know. Here's what God has said, how he revealed himself and how you should respond as you go into the land. And at this point in his second sermon is where he starts to unpack the substance of the covenant that he, God is making with those people. All right, so here's where we're going this morning. God's people obey God out of love for God. We have looked at this in different ways uh, each week, God's people obeying for different reasons or connected to different things. This morning, what we're gonna see crystal clear is obedience to God is born out of love for God. And we could even go further and we say obedience to God shows love for God, right? So God's people obey God out of love for God. Let's take a look. We're gonna look at the first two verses 
talk about them, and then we'll keep going. So chapter six, verse one. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be long. Okay, so it's kind of just an introduction to what he's about to get into, but I want to point out a few things. He says, now this is the commandment, but then he, he further defines that word commandment by telling us that it's the statutes and rules. So I'm just going to try to point out as we continue to go through the different words that Moses uses to describe what we would typically sum up as law. It includes commandments, it includes statutes and rules. And here he, he says the commandment, are statutes and rules. And the Lord your God commanded you, and the reason, so look at these next two highlighted spots, gives us the reason. So you're to obey these things, these are the commandments, that you would do them, that you may do them in the land. He's connecting obedience to the people of Israel with how they live in the land. Why? Because how they respond to the Lord in the land will determine how their life goes in the land. So we're not talking salvation issues. Remember, we're not talking about God trying to decide, am I going to make them part of my people or part of my kingdom? He's already done that. He's already come into covenant with them when he, when he made his covenant with Abraham. And then when he followed up on that covenant and he brought his people out of Egypt from the Exodus, he redeemed them at the mountain in Exodus chapter 19 at Mount Sinai. Deuteronomy calls Mount Sinai Horeb, right? But at that mountain, he made a, an additional covenant. It's a progression of the covenant that he made with Abraham, he made it with the people that came out of Egypt. And he's revealing to them who he is and how they should live, right? So that they can live in the fullness and the abundance of the life that God has for his people. Not so that they can obey and come into a relationship with him, but because their God has redeemed them and they've come unto a covenant with him. Now, this is how they relate and live in the context of that relationship. And so, he says, it's so that you may do them in the land to which you're going over to possess. The next thing is, he says in verse two, so that you may fear the Lord your God. God is concerned that his people have a good and right fear of him. And what we mean by that is this, not that God is the evil taskmaster looking for you to mess up, right? That's us projecting upon God something we've probably experienced here at the hands of parents or guardians or authoritative figures, right? But what, what, what Moses is getting at and what God desires is the good and right appropriate fear that comes with, I'm the created, he's the creator. I'm the one who has been formed out of the clay He's the one who breathed life into my lungs. He's the one who gives life and he's the one who can take life. There is no one more powerful than him, no one greater than him. He could squash me in a moment, absolutely. His power can overwhelm me, absolutely. And yet, this is the same God who draws near to his people and both must be held in tension. God draws near to his people, but we must never take the God drawing near to his people as we treat God casually or commonly because God is holy, which means he is altogether different. He's set apart, which means I've got to keep in my mind a category for in Christ, I may be a friend of God. In Christ, I may be a son or a daughter of the high king of heaven and earth, but I must keep the category. I am still his creation. He is the creator. 
And that comes with a good and right fear. Sometimes we'll soften that and we'll say, well, God doesn't want us to fear him. He wants us to revere him. Yes, God wants us to revere him. And by that, we mean respect, but God wants us to fear him by understanding who he is and having him in a proper, a proper perspective. He's the creator, I'm the creation. That's not a dysfunctional fear, like I'm gonna live my life and fear that if I mess up, God is going to smite me, almighty oh smiter, right? But I've gotta stop with these movie quotes this morning. I haven't even watched them. All right, but he, he, I heard somebody over here said, yeah, they're agreeing with me, I need to stop. Um, so, <laughs> so he wants us to fear, right? So obeying God, understanding who God is through his commandments, his statutes and his rules, so that they may do them and also that they may fear him. You and your sons and your sons' sons, this is supposed to be generational, not just one generation, but it should be passed on. We're gonna dig into that in a moment. And he says, you and your sons' sons, by keeping all of his statutes and commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and then here it is again, that your days may be long. Obedience to God, and when you're in the covenant relationship with God, obedience to God is not about earning his favor upon you to bring you into his kingdom or to bring you into his family. It's not about trying to please God or impress him so that he picks you or you get saved, right? Obedience does not do that. Obedience for the people of God, once you've come into the covenant relationship with God, is about fullness. It's about your quality of life before God and here on this earth in the place where he's given you to live. So he says to them, they're gonna go into this land. I want your days to be long. Why? Because disobedience for them in their context certainly had already come with death. It had already come with physical death. They had seen generation wiped out because they disobeyed. And so one of the things God is driving home is your obedience to me will ensure long life in the land. And it's gonna, it's gonna ensure other things as well, right? So this is Moses. He goes on in verse three. Look with me at verse three. He says, hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them. So God, Moses is very concerned about not just them taking in content, but living out that content. Hear o, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. And so here we've got more covenant language. So what, what Moses is saying again is, here, take it in, but that, that also includes living it out. And then what's connected to them living out the commandments, being obedient to God is that they might multiply greatly. Well, this is God's covenant language here. What did he say to Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and multiply. And when Noah got off the ark and they were starting over, he said the same thing, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. When he, when he gave his covenant to Abram, and so in, when Abram's getting this covenant, he's getting this covenant. Part of it is I'm going to increase your descendants. I'm gonna give you descendants so that a whole nation comes from you. Multiply. Part of God's covenant, which we can trace from Adam to Noah, and it just starts getting narrow and narrower as the progress of the covenants come in, as we see God working his way ultimately to the one who fulfills those covenants, Christ, who then inaugurates a new covenant and then that re restores God's purposes and plans on earth. So we see God unfolding his purposes and his plans. We can call that his kingdom on earth through covenants. And each of these covenants is a progress uh, building on or adding to what was previously there. Multiply helps us see that. 
So your obedience in the land, this falls under the covenant made with them at Sinai or Horeb, right? And the one that's being remade with them here, this new generation, it also includes multiplying. God does not change. His desire is that his people would multiply and fill the earth because where his people multiply and fill the earth, there the kingdom of God is spreading on earth as well. Why? Because the image of God is upon them. And the image of God has much to do with representing the one whose image you bear. And so when you live for God in obedience to God, you are representing God. And so one of the things that God had said to Adam and Eve was with regard to creation, rule over it, subdue it. That's part of the image. Represent God over the rest of creation. So multiply. He's, he's continuing to be faithful to the covenants that he's made. And he says, as the Lord your God fathers has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey, which is a very common way for him to re refer to the land. It's a very fruitful land. It's a, a, a very uh, lustrous land and God will provide for them there if they are obedient to keep his covenant. Let's keep going. Here's the, the, the two famous verses. It's called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So it's called the Shema for the first word, hear. Now we've talked about this. The Hebrew word behind hear is Shema, right? And we've talked about how uh, in Hebrew, the idea of hearing is not simply just taking in content audibly or visually, but then taking it in and then living on it. So it includes both the taking in the content and the living out. It, it requires hearing and doing. So when Moses says, uh, hear, O Israel, he's speaking to these people that stand before him and he's not just calling them to listen to his sermon. He's calling them to listen to it, take in the words that God has given him and then they would live and, and adjust their lives accordingly. It's a call to obedience. It's a call to commitment. It's a call to give their allegiance completely and wholly to one. So hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now this phrase here, there, there's different ways that this can be taken and it depends on the translation you're looking at. Most of them keep it pretty straightforward and simple. The Lord our God, um, so the Lord, our God, Yahweh Elohim. Now we've talked about that. So Yahweh is the name that he has given to the people, how he's revealed himself to Moses at that bush, right? And then how he's revealed himself in the context of covenant. He's Yahweh. That's four consonants, right? Just Yahweh, which means I am in English. So he says, the Lord, your God, Yahweh, he's our God. The Lord, Yahweh, that's our God. Okay, so he's clarifying, Yahweh is your God. We've talked about the word Elohim, which is behind that word God. Elohim in Hebrew is very versatile and it can be applied to any uh, type of being that is not bound by a body. So that can include angels, demonic beings. That can include what we would call false gods, right? So demonic beings posing as other gods. It can also include spirits of, of, of humans who might appear like in the witch and indoor in 1 Samuel, right? It's very versatile. It's any kind of being that's not contained in a body. And yet it oftentimes got used to describe other nations' gods. And so what Moses is doing here, as he's given these words of God to the people, is he's saying, Yahweh is your Elohim. Yahweh is your God. There's a lot of other Elohims. There's a lot of other little G gods. Yahweh is your God. And he goes further and he says, therefore, Yahweh 
is one. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now the question becomes, what does he mean by one? And most of your translations will keep it as the Lord is one and, and leave, it, leave it so that you can decide, right? There's at least three ways that people tend to take this. It could be that, that what God is revealing about himself is that he's singular. He's a united being. Like he's, he, he's not a divided being. And so we would say that God is one God. He's one God. And oftentimes we'll say that in the context of the Trinity and we'll say he's three persons, right? And so it's that one God. So some people read this and they say, oh, this is where God is revealing that he's not multiple gods. He's one singular God. He's a unity, other people say, well, no, what, what God is doing here is he's clarifying for the people of Israel that they should be monotheistic. They should worship only one God and one God only, and that would be Yahweh. And so the Lord is one. What, they, what they're saying is he's, he's a God that is your God. He's the one God for you, right? So they say that. Or the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Sometimes that word behind one can be translated as alone or unique. The Lord your God is unique. It, uh, or it would be like um, the New Living Translation takes this, this approach and says the Lord our God, the Lord is God alone or something like that. So the idea would be there's no other God like your God. He stands out above all the others. He is supreme, right? So it could be a statement like the supremacy of God. <clears throat> Those are the three big ones. Now, here's, here's the challenge here. One, you can, make, you, can, you can study the language and you can make a case for all of those. Some of that's theological, some of it's language-based, but you can make a case for any of those. The question is, is that what Moses meant and, and, and would have understood? Is that what the people of Israel listening would have understood? Is that what God intended for us to do? Our tendency as, I, I say this all the time, but hopefully it's starting to help, help you start to see with different lenses. Our tendency as people who are influenced by Western ways of thinking, that's not bad. It just means we have to acknowledge our biases. We're influenced by Western ways of thinking, which means some of that looks like this. The enlightenment came in in the 1800s, scientific method, observation. If I can observe it, if I can think about it, reason it, if I can smell it, taste it, touch it, then it's real. If it doesn't line up with my senses, if I can't discern it through the senses, or if I can't reason about it, it's not real, right? Reason got elevated. The other thing about Western ways of thinking is we tend to be either or in our thinking. Something has to be either this or that, and we don't have a lot of categories for both and, because we, we divide things up. You, you see this already, and when I say West, it's not just Americans. In fact, when you see the New Testament, the New Testament written in Greek starts to be influenced by a Western way of thinking as well, because the Greek um, uh, empire that spread was influenced by a Western way of thinking. And so you start to see some things divided that, that the Hebrews would not divide. Okay, so here's where I'm going with this. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. I think we might be doing a disservice if we try to pigeonhole one of those things into it. And, and what I think might be possible because an Eastern way of thinking, a Hebrew way of thinking included uh, a category for both and. And so sometimes things were said and it, and it was intentional that it would apply to all things. And so I think, I think we can make a case for this. Yahweh is our God and Yahweh is one. He's one in that he's not a divided being. In other words, he's a singular being. But what that means is this. So lots of the other gods, little g, were limited to territories. We've talked about this. They were limited to geography. And when you would be in a certain geography, you would come under the, the reign or the rule of a certain little g god. And when you would cross the border into another geography, another people group or another nation, you would come under the reign and rule of 
their God. So therefore, their God from one territory would not go over to the other territory. And yet one of the things that, that God is trying to show his people is I'm one. In other words, I'm not divided. So wherever you go, I'm not limited by geography because it's all the Lord's. So one of the things that God is trying to communicate is Yahweh is your God. And by the way, Yahweh is one. He can't be divided. So he doesn't stay with you um, when he's here with you in the wilderness and you're about to go in the land. He's going to be there with you in the land. And when you're in the land and if you should find yourself outside the land, he's not limited to just your land. He's going to be there wherever you go because Yahweh is one. He's not a divided God. I mean that. At the same time, I think Moses is trying to communicate monotheism to the people. You should not be a people who worships many gods. Yahweh is your God. Yahweh is one. You should worship him and him only. He is certainly calling them to that, right? Because they're going to fall prey to that. And then thirdly, I certainly think he is also saying that Yahweh is unique among all other little G gods, all other Elohim. There's lots of other Elohim, lots of other spiritual beings that people worship, but your God, Yahweh, he is supreme above them all. He is the supreme God. All of that is meant to be included in Yahweh the, uh, our, is our God and Yahweh is one. And so the, the Jews would, would cling to this. And this phrase shows up a lot in the New Testament. I'm gonna show you that in just a moment. But before we go there, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. So because Yahweh is God and because Yahweh is one, you shall love him. You shall love Yahweh your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul and with all of your might. Now the heart in Hebrew is not like the heart as we think of it. Certainly the organ is. But we say, I'm going to love you with my whole heart. And we think of it more in a Western way. We think of it more in a Greek way. We think of it and we think, this is where my love, my affection, my emotion comes from, right? But for the Hebrew people, the heart was the center of who you are. It included, yes, emotions and an affection, but it included your mind also. So when the Hebrews speak about the heart, and you can, you can discern this very easily, by the way, go to a search engine, uh, biblegateway.com or blueletterbible.org or wherever you use, type in the word heart, limit it to the Old Testament and see all the places it shows up and read what the heart does. You're gonna find that the heart does thinking and reasoning as well. And so this is how the Hebrews understood the heart. The word for heart included who I am in the core of, of, of my being and included my intellect, my will, my emotions, my affections, my desires desires, right? So when he says, love the Lord with all your heart, he's saying with all of who you are, right? That includes your mind. That includes your emotions. That includes uh, your affection. That includes your desires. He goes on and he says, and with all your soul. This word's a lot broader, but it, it has the idea of the whole person, right? So think about the physical body. A lot of times that word um, behind soul can be used for the physical organs and particularly the organs that need to be sustained in order to, to, to have life. And so he's saying, love the Lord your God with all of your, 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 who you are in your core, your heart, your mind, your soul, your intellect, your will, emotions, all that, but also all of your person. Now, so, so we go from inside to outside. So all of your person, from all of your inner person to all of who you are as a person. And then he goes and says, with all of your might. Now we think strength, and it certainly could be that. The word is very versatile. It could be your, your abilities, your strength, but it, it can be brought into your resources, which means then it, it includes everything you own or possess. But also the word there more often is actually used 
grammar lesson just real quick, as an adverb, right? And so a lot of times as it's translated instead of might, it would say, um, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and do this exceedingly. And the word exceedingly captures that word. But the idea here is this, it's, it's with all of who you are from the inside to the out, and you do it with all that you have. That's the point. He's not, what, what God is revealing here, he's not trying to, to divide somebody into a tripartite being, a body, soul, spirit. That's not his point, right? What he's trying to do is he's encompassing everything you are on the inside, everything you are as a person, and with everything outside of you. And do it with exceedingly greatness. And you, so you get the point then. You're to love your Lord, your God, with everything you are, full devotion, full allegiance, un divide it. That's his point. You cannot love him with one part and not the other. He's calling them to give full and complete devotion and allegiance to Yahweh, their God. Just like Yahweh, their God is one, he's calling you to love them, him with all that you are as one. So hear, O Israel, this is the Shema, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now this shows up, Jesus quotes it. I'm going to show you I'm going to take Mark's version of it and then just a snippet from Matthew. So you might remember Jesus is confronted, as he often was, by the religious leaders of the day trying to trap him. And this is what's happening here. So one of the scribes, a scribe would have been an expert in the law in the Old Testament scriptures. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered, he being Jesus, them well, the scribe asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Now pause, because this is where it's helpful to go back to chapter five, where we talked about what we call the 10 commandments and remember their 10 words. Because when you read this and you say, oh, which commandment's the greatest? Well, surely he's gonna say, there's no other God besides your God, because that's the first commandment in our mind. But remember the 10 words, the 10 commandments, they're an outline, they're a skeleton. We're now in Deuteronomy 6, starting the substance of the covenant. So which of the commandments is the greatest or the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's the Shema. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. So why did he add mind here? Because now we're in Greek language. The world has shifted from Hebrew and he's speaking to a, a, a group of people who are largely influenced by the Greek speaking world. In the Greek speaking world, you separate it heart and mind, which is where we're influenced by in the, in the, in the uh, West. We tend to think there's an 18 inch gap between my head and my heart. And if I can just decrease that gap, then I'm, then I'm in alignment. That's not a Hebrew thought. That's a Western thought. But Jesus is picking up on that in the Greek language it divides those things. But the point is still the same. You love the Lord your God with all that you are from the inside out, right? And so you can see the inside heart, soul, mind, and the outside, the strength. So everything you've got. So he quotes it. Of course, the guy goes back and says, Jesus, you've answered well and right. This is Matthew's version. At the end of when Jesus quotes a Shema, Jesus says this, this is the great and first commandment which will throw you off if you have an understanding that the Ten Commandments are what we've traditionally been taught as the Ten Commandments. Because you're going to go, wait a minute, that's, that's not the first commandment. The first commandment is you should have no other God. But if you understand that the Ten Commandments are actually just 10 words, and you remember the first word was about who God is, 
right? And then, so now that the 10 words in chapter five, they're outlining, they are the skeleton, but chapter six of Deuteronomy is now where he's going, okay, now let's backtrack and let's fill in the substance. And so the very first words, chapter six, verse four, is when Moses is now explaining the commandments. And the very first thing that Moses says in the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength or might. So when Jesus says that's the first and greatest commandment, it's the greatest because it encompasses every other one. It's the first because it comes first in the list. Jesus is not lying. He's not changing anything. It helps if we understand how it was understood and presented so that then we understand why is Jesus saying that. So he says it's the greatest and the first commandment. And then he'll go on and he says the second's like it, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. And he says the whole law is summed up in these two, right? So hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That's the first and greatest commandment. That's how Moses kicks off explaining to these, this new generation the covenant that God is making with them. This is the first thing he calls them to. Everything else that follows is unpacking this and fleshing it out. It's putting meat on the bones of the 10 words of the 10 commandments, and it's helping us to understand what does it look like to love God because he's one? What does it look like to love God from my inner being all the way through my outer being with everything I've got? What does it look like to give my full and complete devotion to God? So we go on. Verses six and seven. And these words that I command you, they shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. They shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. Let's stop there. So Moses is concerned that this doesn't stop with the, the first generation that receives it. So this command, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. He says, these are the words that you should teach to your children. And then to their children, the, the idea is that this needs to be passed on. So the idea here is teach them diligently. Now we hear diligently and we think that means... Um, I gotta be focused in what I do. I, I've gotta, I gotta have a plan. I, I've gotta have it scheduled out. Um, maybe we're gonna say, I've gotta have some intentionality in doing it. Certainly, yes. But you know what the word here means? And it's very helpful. In Hebrew, the word means repetitively. Teach them repeatedly to your children. And so the English translation said, how do we capture that? Let's capture it by saying diligently, but we lose the repetitiveness of it. The idea is not your schedule. The idea is not your, your, your curriculum. The idea is not, do I have all of everything in a row? The idea is, am I doing this on repeat? Is it recycle, rinse and repeat, recycle, rinse and repeat? Am I doing it over and over? Am I teaching these things repetitively to my kids? Why? Because repetition matters. Repetition is how we learn. Now, now we've been conditioned that, that I need my brain tickled with new things, otherwise I don't learn. But the reality is that's separating something that, that God never intended us to separate, my mind from what I do and how I live. And so what we've done is we separate academics. I can learn things with my head, but not live things out with my rest of my body, my life, my heart, right? And the idea is this, God never intended us to learn knowledge about him that didn't impact the way we lived. We're responsible for that. 
God intended for us to learn things about who he is and how he expects us to live, and then we do it. So repetitively helps us to, to remember and to do repetition is key. So teach them repeatedly, diligently to your children, and then he gives, he gives some more instruction. You shall talk of them when you sit. So the idea is like, hey, we're sitting down for a meal uh, uh, as in our home, and so then we're talking about the things of God and who he is, how he's revealed himself, what he's instructed us to. We're talking about it while we're eating, while we're, we're, we're sitting in our home. When you walk, we're talking about it as we go about our day. We're talking about it as we are doing our chores for the day in that culture. They would have been working perhaps. And we're, we're talking about God, who he is and what he's done. It's just on repeat, not, not rote, but on repeat. We're just constantly talking about who he is and what he's done. And then when you lie down, so when you're ending your day and then when you rise, when you're starting your day. By the way, just a reminder in the Hebrew mindset, it's reversed from what we think. So the start of your day in Hebrew is when you lie down. The end of your day is when you rise. Why? Because there shall be evening and morning the first day. There shall be evening and morning the second day. Their days started with evening and then their days ended with the next day evening. So why, why they celebrate Shabbat then or Sabbath? It starts on Friday evening, sundown. That's the start of the Sabbath day. And it goes until sundown on what we would call Saturday. So in their mind, you and I read this and we go, okay, when I lie down at night, that's the end of my day. And when I rise in the morning, that's the start of my day. But you know how revolutionary it is if you were to change your thinking and align it this way. What I do in the evening is going to impact my day. And so think about it like this. I read this in a book in 2014. It was called Leading on Empty. I heard it um, recommended by a um, pastor friend of mine who was burned out. I was not burned out, but I thought, man, it can't hurt to read a book about being burned out so that I can acknowledge and recognize it if I ever get on that path. One of the things that stuck with me was this idea. Understanding the Hebrew mindset was evening is when your day started. Not like we do where I rise up early. And so the idea was, hey, do you need to catch up on sleep? We think about sleeping in on the backside of things. How revolutionary is it to go to bed earlier, right? But we don't do that, right? But the idea of going to bed earlier and catching up on my sleep there as opposed to trying to catch up by sleeping in, revolutionary. Why? Because the day starts in the evening. What I do in the evening, how I sleep and conduct my evening makes a difference for my next day. So when you start your day, when you end your day, but the idea is this, it should encompass every part of your day. It should be regular rhythms of your day, your day, your week, your month, your year. What, what God intended for his people is not that they should be religious fanatics that are doing rote memory things that have no meaning for them or just outward religious practices that have no meaning, but he wanted them to be obedient to him. And that obedience started from the inside and worked its way out and encompassed all of their daily, their weekly, their annual, all of that. And so God gave them those rhythms right? So that their, 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 their hearts and their minds would be turned toward him on a regular basis. So now by way of application, it, one generation who fails to pass on the things of God to another generation, it rests heavy on that generation. 
because you and I could be the generation that stop the next generation from knowing the things of God, knowing who God is, or we can be that generation who continues to, to pass it on because it's on repeat. And I have, first and foremost as a parent, I have responsibilities to my own kids. If you're a grandparent to your own kids and then your grandkids, right? But to the generations, it, it can't be this, well, it's private. I've heard, I've heard parents, not in this setting because I don't want you to feel like I'm singling anyone out. It was in an Air Force setting. I've heard parents say about their kids, well, I don't want my kids to go to church. I don't want to force them to go to a particular church. I want them to decide on their own where they're going to go. And then they can, they can choose for themselves. And I directly but lovingly said to this person, your kids don't know. And you are responsible for telling your kids about the things of the Lord. You are responsible if your kid, because you didn't bring them to church, you didn't teach them the things of the Lord, you are responsible if your kid starts following Buddhism or Hinduism, or it becomes an atheist because that's just what they chose. You bear the weight, parent, grandparent, because it, it needs to be passed on. Now, in order for something like this, rhythms like this, when you sit, when you walk, when you lie down, when you rise, you gotta have margin for this. How do, I, how do I talk about, how about, talk about the things of God? How do I teach them the things of God if I don't have margin? That's our problem. That's our problem in this culture, in this church. That's our problem. We don't have margin. We don't create margin. And so what happens is we're busy, busy, busy. We're going, going, going. And I'm not saying you, you can't do those things, but if you don't have enough margin in those things to be able to be on repeat talking and teaching the things of God, then you're too busy. Now it may be, hey, I just need to be intentional about while we're doing the things that we're doing, but man, too many of us, we're rushing around going from this to that to this to that. And our minds, when we get to the next thing, our mind's still on the last thing. So how in the world are we supposed to allow margin to be able to teach the things of God to our kids? And what that looks like would be, hey, as I'm, as I'm going through the day, I'm listening to my kid tell about my day and I'm hearing something, I'm gonna redirect them to the Lord now. Or as I'm dropping them off to the, to the school bus or driving them to school, I'm saying prayers and I'm in those prayers, I'm saying things that I want them to hear me praying for because I want them thinking about these things. I want them to bless their teachers. I want them to bless their friends and those who are not their friends. But I'm, I'm trying to teach them the things of the Lord. As I sit, as I go, when I lie down, when I rise, I'm not the example for you to follow. I've said that time and time again. So if you're looking for an example, I'm not the example for you to follow. My life doesn't look like your life. My life has a lot, a lot of different margins. So when, when some of you ask me like, what does it look like for, for you to have a quiet time? My quiet time doesn't look like what yours might need to look like. And if I was in your situation, mine would look different. I study all day long. I have, I have time all day long. You don't. And so it necessarily looks different, right? So don't hear a, a one person's example and say, well, I can't do it like that. Look at your life. Be honest before the Lord and ask, do I have margin? Do I have room to be able to spend time on repeat teaching my children about the things of the Lord? Or is, is, is it just, hey, we gotta, we gotta hurry up, get loaded up now because we gotta go to this next thing and you need to change before you get into this next thing. And hey, get out, you're already late, right? There's no time for the Lord. And what I've done is I've undone things. I've taught them my anxiety is the way we live our life. I've taught them that if you're late and you're, you're gonna displease that person, that's the person, that's the God that you need to please right now, right? I'm teaching them things regardless of whether I think I am or not. And one day on Sunday, oh Lord, help me. One day on Sunday for an hour is not gonna do it. 
And one hour of your kids in our kids' ministry is not gonna do it. Our kids' ministry is not designed to be the primary discipler of your kids. Our kids' ministry is designed to be supplemental to what you're already doing. Which is why we do Wednesday nights the way we have been doing it for the last now three years. And I know some of you don't like it, but here's what's behind that. We stopped doing every Wednesday night and we went to one Wednesday night. Why? Because you're too busy and you, you've got too much going on. And yes, you're gonna make time for Wednesday night church. Why? For different reasons. But, but it's just one more thing in your schedule where we separate you from your kids. And then we, we do something for your kids. We do something for you. And what I know we're doing indirectly, and it's not intentional, but it's happening because culture designed it this way or, or is, is geared this way. We're teaching you to consume. Consuming does not make disciples. And so if we just tell you, hey, this is what we've got for you and this is what we've got for your kids, we're conditioning you that you should depend upon the church to do the work for you that God has given for you to do. And so what we've done is we've said, you know what? We're gonna keep one Sunday night, uh, one Wednesday night. And really that was a concession. That was another staff member who, who put that input in because I wanted to wipe it all out. And one staff member said, maybe we should keep one in as a concession and we use it to equip. And that's what we've been doing, right? But the idea is this, creating space. Creating space. Because you know what? Most of you still have Wednesday night protected. We cannot make you do what we want you to do on Wednesday nights. We can't force you to keep Wednesday nights protected, but we can free you up and we can say, look, if you have no other night to sit down with your kids that have a meal, keep Wednesday night protected and do that. It's not gonna feel productive to you because you're used to just going, going, going. Take it and go slow. It'll be good for you. It'll be good for your kids. It's good for your mental health, your physical health, but your spiritual. Because this is the night where we're saying, we could get you here. We could teach you to consume. We could, we could make you spiritually obese, but we'd rather you start to use the stuff that you already have. And we're, we'll equip you and we'll provide resources for you. But that's why we're doing the Wednesday nights the way we are. Now, I know it's taken three years, but some of you are starting to fill those gaps with things now in good ways. Because we're saying, hey, if, if you've already got time with your family, then use that night to, to disciple someone or to, to meet with your discipleship group, or to engage with your neighbors or your community, right? We're trying to free you up to do what the church is supposed to do because you, believer in Christ, are the church. The building is not the church. We can have a tornado, wipe this thing out, and we would still be able to gather as the church. We do not limit ourselves to a building. You're the church. And so on repeat, Teach them diligently to your children. That's why we've been doing the Wednesday nights the way we are. And we're saying to you, be free. Ask the Lord what he wants you to do with that. Let us know how we can support you in that. But we can't force you to do that. But I, I wanna put that right back before you and say, this is why we're doing it. Because we want you to be able to do this. And it's far better for you, parent, grandparent, to do this with your kids than for you to farm them out to Thomas and Ashley or to Trina or to me or to Russ or to whoever because they're gonna learn from us that, or, or indirectly they're gonna learn that it's only the staff or the special Christians that can teach. Parent, you are the primary disciple of your kid. That responsibility is on you and we're here for it. And we're here to help you and we're here to resource you. And now I gotta wrap this thing up.
He goes on and he says, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. There's a lot of discussion. Should this be literal or not? Those who take it literal, they actually bind. In Greek, they're called phylacteries. In Hebrew or Aramaic, they're called tephalin, tephalin, something like that. And they're little little square boxes with leather straps that you'd see. Again, on an Orthodox Jew, you're going to see straps on their arm. And there's going to be like a wooden box here. And there'll be a wooden box up here. Most of the time, they're wearing them for certain seasons. But that's what they're doing. They're taking that literally. If you go into a Hebrew person's home, likely on their doorpost, you're going to see something that has probably the Shema. Um, but maybe the, the 10 words on it, right? But something like that with scripture on their door. Whether it's meant to be taken literally or not, one thing is for certain. What I do with my hands is, is significant. So I should bind them on my hands. In other words, the, the commands of the Lord should impact what I do. When I put something between my eyes, it's, it's my focus, it's my worldview, it's how I see things and the commandments of God should impact my worldview, how I see things. When I go into my home, the doorposts of the entry to my home, the commandments of God should impact what I do in my home, my family, right? It should encompass everything. And the type of obedience that God is calling for his people is a type of obedience that is from love for God. It starts inward and goes outward. It's not outward first. That's what the people in the New Testament got wrong. The religious leaders got wrong. That's why Jesus rebuked them so heavy because he called them whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but you're corrupt on the inside. Every covenant in the progress of covenants required an obedient son. Adam, son of God. He's called that in Exodus. The covenant required that Adam be obedient. He was not. Noah picks up the covenant that God made with Adam. So now he becomes that son of God, not obedient. Abram, son of God, not obedient. Israel is called the son of God, not obedient. Every covenant that God has made requires obedience. He's faithful. He's going to keep his end. But there's parts of that that require an obedient son, which is why all these covenants and the progress of covenants ultimately point to the one new covenant, where the one and only or the one unique son of God, Jesus, became the perfectly obedient son and he met the requirements of the commandments. He followed the law perfectly. And then he did that on our behalf as our representative. He died a death on behalf of sinful people, those who disobeyed the covenants. And he rose again to new life so that now those who respond to him by faith, trusting in his obedience on our behalf, will receive his righteousness because he takes our unrighteousness. He is the obedient son. He is the one who has started the new covenant and in the new covenant, all the other covenants before it are fulfilled. They find their fulfillment in the new covenant. The type of obedience that God calls for is one that starts inwardly and works outwardly. But how do I do that if I'm not given a new heart? If I'm not given a new heart, then I'm just going to obey out of my own strength. But the new covenant says, I will give them a heart of flesh and remove their heart of stone. I will put my spirit within them that they would obey me. And so then we start to learn that God gives us a new heart. We call that being regenerated, being made new, being born from above or born again. All of that describes similar stuff, right? I'm made new, therefore I have a new heart. God gives me his spirit who helps me to live out and obey him. 
I cannot obey God out of love apart from the spirit of God within me. I cannot obey God out of love apart from being given new life, which comes by faith in Christ. I cannot obey God out of love apart from the new covenant. That's what God wants for his people. God's people obey God out of love for God. That's what he calls us to. And it's not a burden. Because when we obey God out of love as the people of God, it's about the fullness and abundance of life that God wants us to have and to experience here and now. It has eternal ramifications, yes. But my obedience here and now is about experiencing the fullness in this life as well. So Father, let that sit. I'm Holy Spirit and sit upon us for a moment. Taking your word and giving us understanding. Anything I've said that's not accurate or correct, God, block our ears. And help us to take the things from you that you need for us to understand and want for us to understand. Then God, show us what it looks like to live You said, hear, O Israel, well, hear, O Houston Church. Tell us the things that you want us to hear, content, and then live out. What is it that that you're saying to us about the way we're living and the way we're, we're teaching our kids? God, it's been said that we're always being discipled. The question is by who or by what? So God, show us. What are we allowing to disciple us? What's influencing us? What's shaping our thoughts of you and the world and how we live? What's shaping that for our kids? Who's shaping that for our kids and grandkids? And where does that need to be corrected? God, if we have neglected our responsibility as parents or grandparents to teach our kids the things of God on repeat, God, we confess that to you this morning. And we repent of that and we ask that you would help us now, equip us to be able to teach them Help us to look for those opportunities to talk and point to you, much like we did in this service today when we talked about the deeds of God, the wondrous deeds of God. We're just pointing to God where we see him, and the evidence is all around. So God, give us eyes to see. Show us where we're conditioned against you or blinded to you. God, all of this in Christ's name, amen. All right, see you guys.